Hi, everybody, and welcome to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities, and gender equality. Uh, it's Stephen here. Uh, hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. Um, welcome, everyone, to our first episode of 2022, which is also, I think, the 10th episode of the podcast. And thank you to the listeners as well for the great feedback we've been getting. It's really, really appreciated. So today, we're delighted to have Professor Jason Arday with us to talk to us about young black men's experience in the UK today and issues of race, racism and masculinity in areas such as our education system. Yeah, and so Jason was actually, um, until very recently, based in Durham University's Department of Sociology, uh, like us, but he's just taken up a professorship in the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. Uh, so huge congratulations on that, Jason, even though obviously it's very sad news for us at Durham. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so uh, in addition to this, Jason is a trustee of the Runnymede Trust, which is the UK's leading race equality think tank, uh, and also at the British Sociological Association, Association. And among other things, he also sits on the Centre for Labour and Social Studies National Advisory Panel and the NHS Race and Health Observatory Academic Reference Group, as well as being a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. So you're clearly a pretty busy man, Jason. Uh, so we're really <laughs> grateful to you for coming on the podcast. And we just wanted to kick off with something quite topical. So we've recently seen the so-called Colston Four being acquitted after being taken to court accused of criminal damage because of their involvement in the toppling of the statue of the slave trader, Edward Colston, in Bristol. So I wondered what your thoughts were on this verdict and whether you thought other statues celebrating controversial colonial figures, such as the one of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College in my hometown, Oxford, should that also be removed? And what do you think these events tell us about contemporary attitudes to Britain's colonial past? That's great. Um, Sandy and Stephen, thank, first, firstly, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm immensely grateful to uh, be part of the fabric or furniture for this episode. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, we just kind of pan to the, the acquitted four. I think for liberation and liberation movements, I think that that was a great thing, a really great thing. I guess I'm not a cynical person, but I guess the other side of it is... Um, it's hard not to look at it and think if they had been black, how how different might that situation have been? So, you know, I guess that there is a symmetry with kind of what happened, not not exactly, of course, but in terms of the storming of capital, you know, um, a few months that preceded that, there was a peaceful protest, Black Lives Matter protest, and there was heavy arms, you know, with um, the American police and other um, extending forces. And I just think sometimes it's interesting how these systems happen because you know my biggest fear when that statue toppled over when Colston was um, taken from his plinth was okay potentially could any black people encounter even more subjugation at the hands of the British judicial system or police so while it was kind of a victory in some ways it's slightly bittersweet because it's kind of the double-edged sword of it is well if they were black individuals might that fate have been different so I'm I'm glad that those four were acquitted because I think that is really important for freedom of speech across across all the intersects and across many different societal issues. And I guess in relation to uh, Roads Must Fall, f for me, that's kind of, I guess, a, a more straightforward thing to answer in terms of it should. The only thing is that there is um there's a paradox with that. And it's a very it's a really interesting one. On one hand, you have um, many people who call for it to fall, including myself. 
But then the paradox is that that particular scholarship is one that over the last many, many um, decades has provided many opportunities for black people and indigenous people to enter the academy. And it's a very prestigious scholarship and one that carries with it a lot of capital and currency. So, you know, sometimes I guess the the thing that I, I get stuck on is that you have some people who have benefited from that calling for its kind of um, dismantling. But for me, I don't think life, no pun intended, is as black and white as this, but if you strongly oppose that, why would you take the scholarship in the first place? And so sometimes we're in this dichotomy of people who can sometimes say one thing, but then their actions lend itself to doing something different. Now, I don't place any judgment on that. I just think that that's an important thing you know the, the praxis element for me is very very important so the theory of something which is roads must fall and then why do we so why do we buy into these spaces yeah i mean in a way you're pointing some of the sort of contradictions and tensions around our colonial history there um you mentioned a bit earlier the black lives matter movement and, and how important that's been both in the us and and in the uk but since then perhaps we've seen something of a backlash uh, here, not least from government ministers. You know, we've got the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, who at one point described taking the knee as gesture politics. But where do you think we're at with racial justice in the UK currently? Has has progress been made in the wake of Black Lives Matter? And, and if so, in what ways? That's a, that's a brilliant point, Sandy. I mean, Kebby Baganok also kind of undermined the momentum with that movement by saying kind of critical race theory was almost you know, it was dangerous in terms of what we're we're looking to try and achieve with creating a more racially just and literate society. Yeah. Um, I think that um, momentum is a really interesting concept in life, full stop. I don't know if you can feel it, but you can viscerally feel a slowing down of race for probably the first time in my 36 years of life, occupying the political centre, but now residing back on the periphery of the political centre. And it kind of goes back to the complacency we've always had around race. You know, it, we were we were forced into it in some respects. We, we had to submit to it because during the period where George Floyd was murdered, we had no choice but to sit there and to digest it for the first time ever, you know, in probably most of our adult lives. And no one's been in a situation where they had to sit with the uncomfortability of that. Um, you couldn't circumnavigate the news because we weren't allowed out of our houses. And I guess for me in, in the UK, I mean, yes, you, you, we're seeing change. Um, I think it's important to recognise that across, for example, the arts, uh, the education, education in terms of, you know, seeing greater range of diversification in terms of people in not senior leadership positions, but prominent positions, shall we say. Um, We're seeing this within sport, you know, media. We're seeing kind of all of these things. But I guess sometimes, you know, it's it's that whole idea of building. I often use this metaphor, building on kind of toxic soil. You know, have we really engaged in the work of digging up this toxic soil and planting fertile soil for us to be able to bud these seeds? and let them kind of grow sustainably? Or have we just kind of engaged in a way where we've planted on toxic soil? You know, you see these kind of roses come come in bloom. You see them kind of bloom in spring. And then when we get autumn and winter, we're, we're back where we was, you know. Um, I, I, I think things are moving um, and things are changing and we're having more open conversations about race. And I don't think that was the case two, three years ago. 
But I, I also think that um, we as a society need to become more comfortable with the uncomfortable. And across the intersect, we, we, we need to get more comfortable talking about things that we're not so comfortable talking about. And I think there's still that kind of rejection of, um, you know, the fact that racism isn't that bad, you know, the, the, the kind of con the, the historical comparator being we're not as bad as America. You know, we're worse than America because in America, they openly talk about it. That's the difference. In the UK, there, there is a conditional contract that comes, you know, invisible contract where if you per as a person of colour, if you decide to question or talk about race, the thing that you're kind of, that's thrown at you is, well, if you don't like it, leave. Go back to where you come from. I was, I was born in London. Mm. You know, these are, these are some of the things. I mean, um, I did I did a talk. This this particular radio station that I was on, um, talk radio, I, I spoke about something and I'm not particularly, I wouldn't say I'm radical um, myself. I always try and speak in as measured a way as possible because I think... Being radical is a privilege. I think that's something that people don't always realise. Like, I don't think as a black or ethnic minority person, you can be radical and there won't be consequences to that. So you, what you always have to engage in is this kind of um, cool intellect, this measured radical, this measured kind of radical approach, if, if you will, because you don't have the luxury of just kind of sitting there and just saying what you want. And, you know, I, I got a banana in the post. That wasn't even that long ago. That was like November. They got a banana in a jiffy bag. And I, and I remember explaining this to students. Um, and so they addressed it to work. And I remember thinking, like, I said to the students, think think about that as a process, right? You can't fit a, a banana in a post box. So you would have to go to the post office. You'd get it weighed. They would ask you what's in the bag. You'd say a banana. They'd probably be quite bemused. You'd send it by recorded delivery because or special delivery because you've got to, because it can't go in... You know, and you kind of think of the amount of trouble someone has gone to do. They've gone to a shop. It's a very deliberate act, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and you kind of think that that's not even casual racism. You know, and that's what we're told to do. We're told to kind of gravitate towards these kind of subtle examples, but we and we, and we do. But like you know, these, these kind of overt forms of racism, someone can just send you a banana to your workplace. I mean, yeah. and there's also there's a history to this kind of stuff as well, isn't there? I mean, I remember when I was at school, they were the only black kid in my class. One of the teachers would say, "I'll oh, throw him a banana," you know, right? Just as an offhand comment, and you know, we kind of sat there and knew it was wrong, but nobody was really supporting that kid either. And, and he and, left. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, right. You know, and, and then later on, I think on the football field, you know, um, at some of the major clubs, people have thrown bananas at players and all this sort of stuff. So there's yeah. a whole sort of history and tradition of, of insult and abuse of that kind, and, of course. And 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 it, and it does. But like the reality is, is that um, I I can't say anything. You know, I say something, I I potentially get reprimanded. To try and explain to people how much restraint people of colour have to show on a daily basis in the face of kind of racial violence, it's a lot. It's a lot, you know, um, and you're taught to you're taught that conditioning from actually a very young age. Like I was taught from the age of 11 what I needed to do, when I needed to do it, how I needed to talk to, you know, people, particularly in white spaces. And you, 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 you and it's sad because I have a 15 year old and a seven year old and I'm kind of and I want them to be able to express themselves. I don't want them to end up being as um, conditioned as I was in terms of knowing how to navigate these spaces, because guess what? You can have all the conditioning you like, but, you know, as Malcolm X said, racism is like a Cadillac. A new model comes out every year. So the conditioning I might have had when I was 11 years old is actually pretty useless in some respects 25 years later because 
racism changes and it becomes more insidious, more intelligent, and you have to kind of roll with the punches in that regard. You have to be very reactive to what is something that kind of hits you in between the eyes continuously. Let's talk a little bit about black masculinity or masculinities, perhaps we should more properly call it. I mean, you know, obviously when we're talking about masculinity, we we have to recognise too that, you know, this is significantly shaped by factors other than gender, so race, ethnicity, class, and so on. But how do you think black masculinity is seen in the UK? And what what are some of the impacts that that has in terms of how our society, our institutions respond to to young black men in particular? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at both ends of the spectrum, kind of black masculinity is commodified. On one hand, you have people who can caricature and parody black men and want to look and be and sound like black men. And on the other hand, you have these kind of caricatures of black men being predatory, being violent, being aggressive, being angry, you know, uh, being non-present in terms of um, parenting, being involved in gangs. And, and and quite simply, it's it's just it's it's inaccurate, you know, it's inaccurate. But when a dominant discourse is kind of spun so so neatly over a period of time, and and you know, and firmly embedded within kind of data, you know, legislation, statistics, then it always presents for what always is an ugly picture, you know. And I always kind of you often hear about knife crime, and it's you know, black people black men in particular who commit the majority of this but you know I, I often kind of refer people back to it was literally less than eight years what was the knife um capital of europe it was glasgow and so you know my point is is that the idea when we talk about black and the black male or a black or black persons we often engage in this thing of ascribing to them so for example like as a black guy jason like what kind of music are you into i'm presuming you like hip-hop well, well, I wouldn't say it's my favorite genre of music. You know, I'd say rock and roll was probably my favorite genre of music. You know, but like, but people don't think in those ways, you know, oh, what kind of clothes are you into? You know, you must be into kind of like hip hop brands and like, you must like, like dressing in this way and that way. Well, no, actually I, I love uh, tailoring. And in particular, my interest was that from the age of 40, I loved how mods dressed. Do you know what I mean? This is what I mean. There's there's a caricaturing and there's a stereotyping of black people is, is, is very, very narrow, particularly black men. And I think, you know, black men work on spectrums, as in society places black men on the spectrum. You know, you're, you're both ends. So you're either the educated black man, of which they're, it's constructed that they're very few, or you're at this other end where you're from deprivation, poverty, and, you know, your only aspirations are you want to be a, a musician or a footballer. And again, who who the question I would always ask who are these narratives spun by? Because they're not not black people. Um, black people are not restrictive in aspiration. I've never come across a black person that is anyway. Um, and it's just amazing how that becomes the dominant thing. And <clears throat> it's disconcerting because when people meet you, that's actually what they presume. You know, you, you go into spaces and and people do that, and they do it consciously or unconsciously. A big part of it is that when you enter spaces, sometimes then you're you're you know you're kind of reminded of how lucky you are to be somewhere, and you're expected to kind of be the good end for one of a better term, and be appreciative of it. And you're like, it's not a case of being appreciative. We're all appreciative of what we have, but there's merit, and you know you're given something on merit. I believe, 
not because of the color of your, it shouldn't be because of um, the color of your skin. And But what we do know is that black people aren't given things on merit because of the color of their skin. So it's, it's always hard to kind of navigate that. And I guess my experience as a black man has always been, um, I wouldn't say tinged is the wrong word, but um, you have to have a very astute understanding of how to operate in white spaces and how to, for want of a better term as well, I don't mean to say this term, but how to manage white people mm. in some respects, you know, um, and a lot of that actually is managing their fragility and protecting yourself from having conversations about racism because often a lot of white people do reject the idea that racism in itself even exists because it lends itself to choreographing a situation where you'll be positioned as falling into those kind of ignorant stereotypes around black men. And I think there's this idea that black men are tough, you know, they're robust, they're resilient, you know, and because of that, it means that when we think of kind of mental health provision, how much have, have black men been overlooked you know, how much, how much is their distrust? You know, how much do we revert straight to medication rather than kind of cognitive or psychological therapies with, with young black men? Um, you know, when we think about these young black men who go, who are placed into, and I use the word placed, into the uh, prison, school to prison pipeline, you know, you put any individual out on their rear at 13 years of age and tell them to figure out the world. I mean, we teach students who are 21 and, and don't, and, you know, hmm. You ask them, what do you want to do when you're leaving? Like, I have no idea yet. So how's a, how's a 13-year-old supposed to figure that out? But we do we do that as a society, and, and it's totally acceptable. And then we wonder why, you know, what, what are these young black men are going to do? What are they going to do to kind of make the time up? No school in their local authority or local borough will take them. The government are taking money out of, you know, pupil referral units. And then they end up on the street trying to figure life out. And at 13 years, you know, you know I'm 36. I, don't, I haven't figured life out. I don't, I don't I don't understand how someone who's 13 is is expected to do the same so sometimes I, I think of these things and it's it's difficult um because my my experiences have been that um temperament is a big thing and I and I recognize that as a black man I, I've had to be obsessed with temperament so that you're not in a situation where you know you live up to you live up to in inverted commas um stereotypes ignorant stereotypes that people have you know so as a general rule of thumb i never raise my voice never never ever raise my voice and you know if i've if i get angry or annoyed i will go into a room on my own and i might scream under a pillow that's about the extent of it but even then no one would see me because the fear is you're going to be painted as this angry black man but you know in in the heat in the heat of battle you know when you're at work or when you're kind of in society you have to be calm. You have to be cool, you know, because you're you're walking. You're basically in the, walking into an atmosphere of you know agitation all the time, you know. And it's and and it's difficult because when you get home, that's about the only time when you can relax. You know, it's like taking off a pair of shoes that have been aching your feet all day. That's the only time when you can actually kind of be like, oh, finally. And it's a tough one because you also want to balance that with the idea of you know. I tap my feet when I hear music and I scratch my head when it itches. I don't do it the other way around, you know? So mm. I, I, you know, if I don't like something, I will say it, but I recognize in that moment, I have to be as succinct and as articulate as possible. And I have to think about everything that's going through, you know, body language, dialect, the language I'm using. And that's, you know, that's not something that I think white people, particularly white men, white middle-class men have to think about all the time. 
I, I, I think to an extent, white working class men have to think about that, but in a different way. I'm sure, I'm sure Stephen wants to ask things, but I just wanted to ask you one more thing, considering what you've just been saying, which is what you said relates very strongly, I think, to the book by Rennie Edo-Lodge, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And in that book, she she says, she describes how she's emotionally exhausted um, trying to get her message across about structural racism. And as the book title says, she, she's no longer prepared to do it. But I wonder what you thought about that and, and whether you still have the energy, you seem to have the energy to engage with white people around race and racism. But are, are there costs to you in, in doing this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a couple of things to make, I guess, very clear. Rene Ayado Lodge, as a black woman, make no mistake about it, she will experience racism in a way that I could never even fathom or imagine. I mean this with the utmost respect. Like, I don't think you could pay me enough money to be a black woman knowing how they suffer. So knowing that as not a flippant statement, part of my job as a black man is to really think about what I can do to create greater spaces for black women to have these discussions in a safe place. Because, you know, society does not, in my opinion, it doesn't support, nurture, or allay the fears of black women. It is continuously violent towards black women. And so there's a privilege that comes with what I'm about to say. If I do have the energy to keep doing it, it's because I'm not straddling other parts of that intersect. You know, I'm not facing misogynoir. I'm not, you know, facing the continual um, discrimination that black women face, you know, um, the fetishization of black women, the kind of the beautifying of black women, you know, the um, objectifying and the violence towards black women. I'm, I'm not experiencing that. And wrongly, as a black male, I privilege from that kind of male patriarchy and hegemony in a way that black women never would you know so I think Rene Edo Lodge's experience and how she's beautifully articulated it um, in, in her book speak to particularly the experience of how black women face that, that 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 lived experience and I think it's important to recognize that because as a black man I profit the labor of race work predominantly and historically speaking has been done by black women and wrongly, I've been a beneficiary of that. Now, what do I do with a position that I have or I have had over the last five or six years? You've got to think of ways of dismant dismantling and disrupting that privilege in a way that white people have to do as well. But there, there is a, there's kind of a nuance, you know, in terms of talking about black women that I think we all need to be more cognizant of as a society. And I guess, you know, the energy that I would have is that... Um, the language of engaging in anti-racism is like a love language. Like my dad always says to me, you always know what you can do, but you never know what someone else can do. Now, because of having that, having been told that all my life, I can almost predict what white people are going to ask me in any given situation with regards to race, particularly if they reject the idea of racism. Now, what they won't expect because of potentially some of the stereotypes that they'll be working with is the responses that I will give because I'm not falling into the ignorant stereotypes they have of black men. So like I said, I never raise my voice. Generally speaking, unless I'm really excited about something, I talk at the same pace all the time. Now these are conscious things that you would think like, it sounds crazy to say this, but these are things you have to do as a, as a black person, as a black male, you have to 
be very, very cerebral in how you speak and how you deliver the message you're, you're, you're about to deliver. And that is exhausting because it's not a natural thing to do. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, a politician aspect of it in some respects, but you know that you can't waste words and there's a pressure and there's a responsibility that comes with that. And so the en- the energy for me comes from the fact that I think that I have been um, very fortunate to have been conditioned at a young age to convey a message in 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 a way that I can get my point across that doesn't lend itself to the ignorant stereotypes that are situated around black men. And so the energy comes from the fact that it's, I think sometimes it can be very hard for someone to argue with the way I say things because of the way I deliver it. And I think delivery is a really important thing, but I think I've had the capital to have been taught that from a young age. Now, if people don't have that capital across the intersect, then what are you labelled as? Shouty, you know, another left-leaning so-and-so. You're, you're, you're categorised in a certain way. And it's even exacerbated further when you are black, when you're a black man, and even worse, when you're a black woman or a woman of colour. Yeah, and um, I mean, of course, uh, as you're saying, like people challenge these stereotypes about black masculinity in all sorts of different ways. And you have, I believe you've got a book coming out soon called Being Young, Black and Male, Challenging the Dominant Discourse, coming out through Palgrave Macmillan. And um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the book and what some of the key messages are around, you know, what is that dominant discourse and how can it be, how can it be challenged? That's great, Stephen. Thank you so much. I mean, that that particular book is kind of really about how, society has kind of really cemented these stereotypes around young black men. And so what I did is I interviewed over 200 um, young black men between the ages of 13 to 26. And what was kind of really interesting was the positioning that these kind of black men felt. So if we go towards the other, you know, the, the, the older age of 26, you know, you had people who had masters, gone to elite institutions, who'd gone to university, gone into the labour market and were able to find um, continuous employment. And for them, it was trying to make sense of, well, why is that the case? I'm educated to master's level. Um, I'm fairly competent, but I can't get jobs. I'm going into interviews and I'm being told that, um, unfortunately, you know, you, you just missed out. What did I miss out on? Well, it was, you know, it was, it was literally hair's breath. Now, if that experience happens once, that's one thing. But when it happens multiple times people begin to think about, okay, well, why is that happening? Why is that happening? You know, um, and, and that become that can become very difficult because as you know, in a lot of interview spaces, there's shared spaces where you know, sometimes people nervously engage and they probably divulge too much. So from that, you can discern very quickly from somebody you're shortlisted with what they have and what they don't have. And if you're kind of measuring that against what you have and you kind of think, well, why didn't I get the job then? Because they, unless, you know, and I don't think people are going to lie in that situation. I think just nervous energy, they just talk too much, and they tell too much and they overspill. And so part of it is really kind of people making their educational or societal transitions at particular ages and kind of really kind of questioning how has that experience been for you? What is that experience like? Now, it, it may not be a surprise to you to hear that pretty much the majority of those people have a remarkable symmetry in their experiences, you know, and as they didn't know anything about my background, but it was completely similar to my own. Um, and what's kind of really interesting is this idea of being caricatured, being stereotyped, being stopped by police. You know, the first time I was stopped by police, I was 14. And up until I was 35, I'd been stopped by police every year 
I've been stopped by the police every single year of my life for 21 years, you know, so, and that was, you know, two, three times a year. But, you know, we had, I interviewed people who've been stopped, you know, two, three times a week. What people don't realise or what kind of authorities don't realise is that people's relationship then with the authorities becomes a really fractious one because they, they there's a distrust of the authorities because they are abusing their remit to safeguard and protect people by by unneedlessly apprehending people who have not really committed a crime. They're being stopped because of their the colour of their skin. And those things kind of really resonated throughout the book. And then, you know, I've tried to intertwine it at, at times where, where it's appropriate with my own positionality in terms of how I've had to navigate white spaces and how difficult it's been. And a lot of it has really been situated around my obsession with temperament, you know, um, and never ever showing annoyance in public, which by the way, that's a human emotion. You should be able to be annoyed or be upset or be angry. And that was, it was interesting hearing those experiences with those young black people in terms of even when they're in school and being, you know, challenging what the teachers say sometimes around history, particularly black people and their involvement in history. They challenge that and then their position as being a difficult student. They're labelled as a difficult student. They're taken out of the classroom space. Now, if you're taken out of the classroom space continuously for three to five year period, what effect will that have when it comes to year 11, when you've got to sit with GCSEs? And it's all these kind of things that were kind of discussed in the book and really thinking about, you know, almost engaging in Afrofuturism with these young uh, people and kind of asking them, what, what would you like to see? You know, if things could be different, what would you like to see? And the biggest thing that just came out, I just want things to be equal. I just want things to be equal. And, you know, most of those, particularly the the, the, the teenagers, I guess they didn't know about the idea of meritocracy. But, you know, when I explained it to them, one of them said, in theory, meritocracy is a great idea. In theory, it's a great idea. But in reality, it's an absolute sham of an idea because it only benefits to serve a particular group of people in society. It doesn't actually rely on merit you know if anything it, it undermines merit um by positioning only particular groups of people in certain positions and it was just kind of interesting like i said to hear those narratives um because a lot of them you know resonate with my own and my you know black friends i have that are of a similar age and you kind of think what's disappointing is that from 13 to 26 so let's go with 13 you know, they don't have any backstory of what has happened in my life or other black people of a similar age, but they're talking about the same types of issues. And then you're kind of thinking, okay, so 22 years on from the McPherson report, what advancements have we made around institutional racism? And it's becoming more and more apparent that systemically we, we haven't really made as much advancement as we perhaps should have. No, absolutely. And I mean, you talk about meritocracy and like, for example, how does it affect your relationship with the police? If, you know, me as a white man, I've literally never been stopped by the police, right? And I'm 33 years old. And that's so like just completely different positions in society, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, you, you talked about your kind of personal uh, background a little bit there. And that is something we like to um, explore on, on Now and Men, um, if that's okay. So yeah, I was just wondering how and why did you first get involved in, in doing research on these issues? It's really interesting. I mean, um, my my mum was an activist, so my earliest memories as a child was um, basically being on picket lines, being at committees. Um, there was one near where my mum lives in Clapham. It was Lady Margaret 460 Settlement, and they were a branch of 
at the time I didn't know this, but they were a branch of Oxford um, or Oxford funded it. And the idea around it was something around social enterprise. So this particular social enterprise was, it was made up of quite a few people, um, namely um, of all the ironies, Professor Heidi Merzer was on this particular committee. And so I've got a picture at home of me sitting on Heidi's lap when I was five. Now, the, the irony of this particular this particular picture is that there is no way that um, my mum and Heidi sitting together are looking at a five-year-old child sat on Heidi's lap thinking, you know, 20, well, it ended up being 26 years later, that Heidi and I would end up writing a book together. There's just no way you could predict that. <laughs> like, um, so it's kind of funny how, how things work out. Um, but like, what's kind of really interesting about that, um, that, that I guess my child is that you kind of see these things. So kind of coming from a background where I was conscientized to kind of racism from a very young age, you know, particularly around South Africa, um, you know, particularly around Stephen Lawrence at the time, Stephen Lawrence was a murder. I was seven. So, you know, you, I was conscientized all of that. It, it was kind of, my mum always says it was inevitable that one of her boys was going to end up doing something in this area. Um, but I guess my, my, background <laughs> I, I wouldn't have guessed it would have been me purely because of I guess some of the disability aspects that I had growing up I mean probably will still have you don't lose them but still still have so that was weirdly that was probably a bigger issue for me than race um but then when I became a school teacher I was a PE teacher in a previous life I kind of saw how young black people were treated um and I noticed it when I was a, when I was when I was a pupil myself but I kind of saw it and I often kind of, I refer to it as throwing people off the scent. So a really good example of this is that you would see a lot of young black learners and they would often, the teacher would often ask them, what do you want to be when you're older? So let's just say a student replies and says, I want to be an astrophysicist. And the teacher would be like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's brilliant. But do you know what is equally as amazing as that? Being a footballer or a musician. And I think you'd be a great musician. I've heard your, re and I've seen you play football. I mean, you're brilliant. Why don't you, why don't you focus on that? Now, what was really interesting is that like, that was never said to the white pupils when they kind of spoke about those aspirations. And what I soon came to realize is that if you repeat that to somebody every day for two, three, four, five years, well, guess what? What are they going to aspire to be once they get to doing their GCSEs? Their, their, their focus on being an astrophysicist is, is long gone. You know that they're going to want to be a musician now the likelihood of being a footballer or being a musician is, is quite slim i would say that child's got a better chance of being an astrophysicist because there's actually a variable that they can control within to all extents and purposes this isn't a meritocracy but if if they actually do get the grades they need i think they've got more control of that situation than something that in all honesty lays in the laps of the gods so it's just so i i kind of think that um that, that part of it was kind of observing that. And then when I got into kind of higher education, you just kind of, you observe people and you ask yourself questions. Why are people in the same position they were 20 years ago? Why aren't there, you know, more black people in academia? For me, the motivation was to get into it, to change it and to do something different. You know, I'd seen a lot of, I'd seen a lot of white people who'd spoken about racism in academia but i hadn't really seen any evidence that they were doing anything to change it if anything i actually thought they were profiting from that plight and i think what we've seen is like a, a changing but i think that's because now 
there is a closer link between the theory of doing things and the practice. Whereas I think there was a lot of theories about how things should be done with regards to race mobilized by white people, but there wasn't actually a lot of it put into practice. So you could have um, senior white scholars say racism is really bad, but it's like, okay, well, what are you practically doing to change that? Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the difficult part of that, of this conversation is that it's very lucrative for white people to discuss race. It's not lucrative for black people or ethnic minority people to talk about race. If anything, it's quite consequential. It, 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 it causes a lot. It's done. It's cost me jobs. It's cost me jobs. It's for me to do it, even even in as articulate as I can try and be, it's, it's created spaces that have become very hostile for me. It's amazing to me how sophisticated you've had to be in order to get your messages across. But I wanted to, to ask about one other thing which you raised a minute ago, which was issues around disability as well, because we haven't really talked about that as part of the sort of intersectional package, if you like. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this, we're able to talk about this, but but as I understand it, you you do suffer from a form of autism and have done so for, for many years. And yeah. you didn't really speak until you were age eleven, is that right? And yeah, want so to say I, something about that and, and how that relates to being a being a boy, being a man as well. Because in a way, I could see that could end up with you feeling powerless in a world where men are supposed to be powerful. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, um, if someone asked me what, what affects you more, you know, being autistic or or racism, I'd, I'd say being autistic, because. I mean, the, the the thing is, is that I I've, I've not known any difference for thirty three years. So I was diagnosed with autism when I was um, three. So I was diagnosed with global development delay and Asperger's. So I didn't learn to speak until I was eleven. So I signed until I was eleven, and then I didn't learn to read and write until I was an adult. So I was eighteen when I learned to read and write. And so, what was always really interesting being autistic in that space was. Um, how you make sense of the world. I've, I've never known a point in my life where I wasn't autistic, but interestingly, my mum never really mentioned it to me. You know, part of my nurturing or conditioning was just to kind of, she, she obviously explained to me that I'm, I'm different, but she kind of made it very clear that this is what's going to differentiate you from other people. This is what makes you special. And that was the message I heard from a very young age. So I didn't, I didn't actually know any different. Um, it's only when I got older that you realize what it means to other people and how difficult it is. So it's only in the last kind of two years or so that I've probably three years that I've maybe kind of spoken about it because I recognize that as a black male, you know, for me to have done so any sooner than that, it would have made an already very difficult job in terms of being black in the academy even more difficult. So there's a lot of prejudices that black and ethnic minority people face. And I thought, okay, I don't need any more ammunition to be, you know, I don't need to give anyone any more ammunition to make my life any more difficult. And so what is kind of interesting about that is, you know, in, in many respects, like, you know, my, my, my route has been pretty non-traditional and so how, and how I make sense of things is, is different. But, you know, I always say to people, if I was to say to, you know, Stephen and yourself, Sandy, you know, when people speak to you, imagine if you only understood things 90% of the time because you have a processing delay. Like, you know, to try and explain that to somebody is a, is a very difficult thing to do. So most of the time when, when I'm in a position where, you know, I'll give you an example. So I was just, I just, I was, as, as Stephen mentioned, I was recently at Durham 
and I was deputy executive dean. And that's a really difficult job. It's a really difficult job. There's lots of multifaceted things you have to be able to do in a very tight, short space of time. And about 95% of the time, I, I had no idea what was going on. But in that moment, there are a couple of things that people may not recognise. As a black person, I was one of only few black people in a senior position in the university. I think I was one of three, if that. So part of being isolated in that space is people question your competence to be able to do something. So if I, if I, if I say at any stage I don't understand, they're going to question my competence, not maybe because I'm incompetent, but because I'm black anyway. If I don't throw into that, that I'm autistic, that's another layering of kind of questioning of competence. And with all of these kind of things, part of it is always, it's, it's being in that state of survival. So I know that 95% of the time, I don't understand what's being said to me, but I know that, okay, I've got to write, you know, most of the conversations I have, I mean, people probably don't know it and, you know, but I, I'm recording, it. I'm writing stuff down, I'm writing stuff down, you know, I'm record, literally recording it on my phone and then listening to it four or five hours later. You know, and you kind of think in a society that is neurotypical, how do we support neurodivergent people? And the truth is we don't, we, we don't, you know, you have to learn to become neurotypical. You have to learn to be able to survive. That is compounded when you add aspects across the intersection, which could be either disability, race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, a, a big part of it is always, you just have to find a way to survive. Now, when you say that to someone, they might kind of think, well, that's slightly disingenuous, Jason, because you've become a professor quite young. But what people don't realise is what you've got to do to get there. So what they see is the end product. They don't see what happens in between, you know, and the obsessiveness and the discipline aspect that comes into it. Now, you know, part of my autism is that I can be really obsessive with myself, not with other people, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'm obsessively disciplined in terms of doing work. And when people ask me, how did you become a professor so young? That's the one thing I would say, but then it doesn't give you balance, right? And to be a well-rounded, we, you know, we spoke just before we went on air about how boring I am. <laughs> to be a, a well-rounded well individual, you need balance. Now, if you were to ask my 15-year-old daughter, what's the one thing you would have loved from your dad? She would say, I love him to bits, he's great but I would have loved more time with him when he was present. You know, now my obsessiveness to do something and to do it like that doesn't, hasn't always lent itself, you know, to being as present as I could be with my daughter. I mean, Noah, who's seven, he's had a better run of it, but like Taylor could make an argument that she, she hasn't. Right. And, but part of that is his, the autism now in, in, in a home space where you can kind of, let all of those kind of performative, that performative armor come off. They experience it a lot harshly than other people do because at work you're performing, you're performing. If anything, I'm trying to mask and hide all of my autistic behaviors. So nobody sees it. And by the way, like I'm yet to meet a person who would be able to guess that I was, but it's only because I've had like 33 years of learning to mask it to an amazing level, you know? Um, and that's the thing that um, is, we shouldn't have to do that. Sadly for me, uh, it's something that I have mastered, but it's not something I sit here and, and say I'm proud of because um, I could say you should just be allowed to be yourself. But the reality is, is, you know, I, I 
I didn't, I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't even bring it up. I don't even tell people part of that is like, why, why don't you do that, Jason? You know, and you, you, it's that fear of judgment is that fear of people using, I never use it as an excuse. So, you know, the worst thing that someone could do to me is kind of say, well, Jason, maybe you didn't understand. Uh, let me explain it again because of your, maybe because you have a, and so because of that, you, you know, you, you don't <laughs> divulge these things. And, and, it, and, it, and it carries a burden because like I said, 90% of the time, you actually don't have any idea what's going on. You know, a lot of it is information overload. And actually, I think if I was white and I told someone I was autistic and I said, I just need sometimes for people to explain things to me in a certain way, but you know, it might take you 10 or, you know, five or 10 times to do it. But once I've got it, I've got it. But, but because I don't have, you know, I, I'm not white. I, uh, you know, when I, when I don't, I don't have the luxury of telling someone I don't understand something. I they probably think I'm even competent or I'm not as capable or, you know, this is why, this is why you can't hire them. They're not, they're not, they don't understand. They don't get it. And so often you suppress that. And so, the, the beauty of that is that when I see that in a student, I've always been very empathetic because like when they say they understand, I can see it. I can see it that they don't understand. And so I don't ask them if they understand. I just try and find another way to explain it so that they do find some sort of link or synergy of what I'm saying. Thanks for talking about those issues so openly. I mean, that's fascinating, really, because I, I thought, you know, we'd come into this interview and spend it most of the time talking about race. And actually, here we are talking about disability for quite a lot of the time. And, and that's clearly very important to you as well. So so thank you for that. Um, I think you've said quite a bit about some of the issues experienced by black people in UK universities. But I wondered what you thought could be done to improve the experience of, of people of colour, um, especially black men and boys in, in the UK education system more more broadly i mean do we need to change curricula to give black and and probably white students a broader sort of cultural understanding of of our history is that something that you would support yeah i i think that racial literacy um i think there's always this idea that black history within the curricula is for the benefit of black people it's not as societal citizens that need to circumnavigate and traverse a truly multicultural multi-ethnic global society we all need to understand that a lot better, not just black people. And I believe, and I would actually also say black people already have an understanding of it, um, actually, by proxy. I think our education system is structurally set up to systemically disadvantage black, young black people. And as, by the way, a part of that is because initial teacher training, one of the things that doesn't happen enough in initial teacher training is a challenging of people's values and belief systems about particular groups of people across the intersect. So they go into classroom spaces with these unchallenged values and belief systems. And guess what? They play out through their curricula, through how they occupy that space, through their dialogue with students. And for me, that is consequential in those formative years of learning at, you know, four to 11 years old, you know, those adolescent years of learning, you know, 11 to 16 years of age. That is really important because that's where people make sense of the world they live in, you know, from an education point of view. And our education doesn't facilitate people. In my opinion, the UK national curriculum does not facilitate people to be truly global societal citizens. It doesn't. It doesn't. I think it it, it facilitates people to be adversarial. Um, and until we get a grasp on that and until we have education secretaries that really um meet that commitment and that responsibility until they realize that and take that seriously 
you're going to have generations of black and ethnic minority people that are going to continue to be failed by an education system um, that is actually inherently and institutionally racist. And the sad thing is that we've had the code report, we've had the scan on report, you know, we've had many reports over the years, over the decades, you know, and, and then sadly, the advancement isn't necessarily there. Now, that's not to say when hearts and minds are aligned, it cannot be done. But increasingly, what it does mean is that we're putting more and more pressure on teachers to be able to make those discernments in the classroom space. And some of them are not able to do that, not always through any fault of their own, but actually because they haven't had the training to be able to do that. And I think that's a really important thing. You know, we're training teachers to be really cognizant or really kind of progressive pedagogues. But part of that pedagogy doesn't actually include understanding how to navigate the diverse multicultural classroom. And, you know, you're setting them up to fail by not being able to do that. You know, it was something I noticed in a, in a previous life, being a teacher educator and working with teachers and doing that. And, and as a teacher myself, I wasn't trained to understand these things, but I had an understanding of that because of the doctrination I had, you know, from my mother and my dad. So, and the thing we'd all default to is, is it's generational. But, you know, I've taught students who are 19 years of age who say the most abhorrent things. That's not, I mean, yeah, it's intergenerational in that they may have learned it from their parents, but it doesn't move away from the fact that they are young and saying this. And the narrative always is, is that older people think like that. It's like, no, <laughs> younger people, young people have these thoughts as well. And if we don't arrest them at these pivotal stages of their lifelong learning journey in education which for most people goes up to the age of 21 then by the time they go in society they hold these views which then become very difficult to disrupt once you go into the labor market i was wondering as well uh, jason obviously schools have been impacted hugely by covid and i was just wondering um what are some of the to you some of the major ways in which kind of the pandemic has impacted on some of the issues that you've been talking about. I mean, for example, you know, if you think about health and well-being, we know that black communities, people of colour have been disproportionately impacted by COVID because of the kind of systemic inequalities you've been talking about. If we look at like how the police have been policing the kind of rules and restrictions around COVID, we know that uh, communities of colour have been disproportionately targeted, which feels like painfully ironic at the moment when we see all the kind of parties that have been going on in, in halls of, of government. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you think uh, COVID has, uh, what effect has that had? Yeah, on? I think that's a brilliant point. I think what COVID has done is shone a light on um, a lot of the disproportionality in terms of health outcomes, um, in terms of how our health systems and policies have institutionally and systemically disadvantaged and let down people of colour. I think that in terms of policing, I think what we've what we've also seen in that time is a a positioning of we we we've kind of seen young black and ethnic minority people being targeted by the police um during the lockdown period and there's a lot of kind of national um, ONS data to support that and I think probably what is also really sad is the numbers that were dying within the black and ethnic minority community you know and the lack of intervention parliamentary intervention in place to better support those communities, not kind of scaremongering um, which kind of positions black and ethnic minority people as being resistant to taking vaccinations and kind of centering them as part of the problem and not recognizing that historically black and ethnic minority people have been used in experimental ways for medicine, most notably when we think about black women, particularly during childbirth, 
um, and we think about kind of C-sections and things like that. So there's a historical element to this, which creates distrust. I think rather than kind of listen and go with open ears, what we've seen is this kind of oscillation between um, the government saying, you know, it's up to you to make better decisions, but not actually understanding why people are hesitant to make these decisions and distrusting of a government that has always institutionally racialized them and disadvantaged them. That's a really interesting point, because I know in one of our previous episodes, uh, Peter Baker, we spoke to, you know, emphasised like we should be engaging with people more about the vaccine and, and you know, having a dialogue with them about that rather than adopting this kind of punitive approach, like having a go at people for not, or, as you say, kind of being suspicious of people and stuff. So, yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting point. Um, but the last question I had was just about, um, as you may know, you know, now men is kind of one of the core focuses of that is around how we can engage with men and boys around gender equality. But obviously gender equality, you know, we can't look at that in isolation. As you've said, like an intersectional approach is really, really important. And so I suppose like, you know, for somebody like me, for example, who's like a white man, you know, somebody who wants to be an ally, um, therefore, you know, it's vital not just to speak out about sexism, but also, you know, to speak about all forms of discrimination and, and oppression, such as racism, of course. So I was just wondering what, in your view, are some of the most kind of important principles which white people and perhaps especially, you know, white men should be taking into account in order to kind of meaningfully support and be allies for uh, race equality? That's a great question, Stephen. I, I think the biggest thing for me is... Um is always positionality and a challenging of privilege and how that privilege works to disadvantage other people. It's not always a, a deliberate thing because I think it's also important to recognize that um, different groups of white people experience privilege in different ways. You know, So how a white working class person experiences privilege is very, very different to how a white middle class person or upper class person experiences privilege. But I think nonetheless, it's privilege. Yeah, that having white skin is privilege it represents privilege and you know just like being a man represents unfairly represents privilege and i think one of the things that i i think white people can do is listen i don't always associate white people with being very good at listening when it comes to issues of race and racism and part of that is actually letting that digest there's almost like a fragility and a resistance that white people encounter when they hear anything to do with race and a default position is to be fragile or it is to kind of allude to the point that, you know, we're improving, things aren't as bad. But, you know, the person who's experiencing it, I think they're the ones whose opinion matters, in my opinion. So I think that listening can be difficult and it's almost a re an uncomfortable reaction to hearing something that maybe one doesn't want to hear. So I think that's a really important thing. I, I think that um, a lot of the time white people need to accept challenge. You know, um, in my personal experience, I, I often think, you know, I, I've observed in workspaces, people challenge, you know, disadvantaging normative orthodoxies or challenging orthodoxy and it's celebrated. And, you know, when I've done it, I'm kind of positioned as someone that's been difficult. And one of the things that uh, we need to move away from is this idea that black and ethnic minority people should be grateful to have a seat at the table. You know, for me, a seat at the table is redundant if you're not able to actually kind of eat at it, you know. Um, and, and I think it's important that we create space and engage in kind of spaces that allow black people to, and ethnic minority people to express themselves without fear of reprisal. You know, very often you're, you're sitting within that sphere of reprisal. You know, if I do this, what's the consequence? And, 
you know, for, for me, you know, that there are times when it's difficult, you know, because you, you, you know you're being treated differently. Thanks for the challenges you've presented to us today, Jason. You've certainly made me feel a bit uncomfortable, which, um, uh, taking your point, you know, I think is a, it's a really good thing, actually. I wanted to end on a slightly different note, which was a, a, a musical one, and as which was uh, we're aware that uh, music's played a particularly important role in your life. And yeah. you know, now this is this is not Desert Island Discs. We can't play your favourite track, but. What what songs do you think best reflect the challenges you've faced and and face now? And I, I know in the past you've mentioned anything from Oasis to Bowie to ACDC. What, yeah. What what do you think of now? What's what's the moment you're in? Um, it's I mean my my favorite song um, is a song by the Eagles called "Take It to the Limit." Um, so that that is my favorite song of all time, and I often I, I often refer to you know my own journey in terms of academia as in t- taking it to the limit. You know pushing it really to the point where it's probably cost me a lot to be honest um but i i think um i don't know that's a great question man i never get asked <laughs> a great question like um, <laughs> these are the kind of questions i could answer all day long i, I think um do you know what i i think i'll, I'll revert to, to my favorite band we'll go to, we'll go to oasis and um, at the beginning of a song called columbia they say there we were now here we are and i and i, and I think like what has happened over the last two years is that we were we were in this place where you know a lot of things were unchallenged and were kind of taken for granted discriminatory norms and now here we are i think we're moving towards something that i think is actually quite special i think that we're beginning to look at intersectionality race you know gender class disability religion we're starting to look at it in a way that i don't think we've ever looked at it before and, and I and I and I honestly think that that is a really, really special thing. I mean, this is this is this is this is not trivial. Me saying this, but like, ten years ago, if a if a if an alleged member of the royal family was accused of engaging in you know an inappropriate act, let's say that until the legal process kind of passes itself, that would never that would you that that would this situation that we're seeing now. This is like history in the making. Not because it's not because there's something voyeuristic about it, but because once upon a time women were encountering sexually abusive and violent experiences at the hands of men, and there was a time where it was completely acceptable, and and they and, and it wouldn't be challenged. It would be accepted as the norm. Now we're seeing historic cases being challenged. Like that for me is progression. That for me is massively progression. You know we're seeing. We're, we're seeing greater representation in terms of black and ethnic minority people, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. That, that for me, is progress. And yes, it's slow, but it, it, it is progress. So I, I do think, you know, there we were, now here we are. And, and, I, and I think, um, to finish on Fleetwood Mac, um, yeah, t- don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Like, um, I, I, I think you, you've always got to believe tomorrow can be better. We could almost do a part two with you at some point, but uh, uh, no, it's fant- fantastic to hear about your musical tastes as well, your diverse musical tastes. So and oh, thanks so much for coming on the programme because I, I I think it's been really um, uplifting and interesting and challenging. So uh, no, that's, no, thank you so much for having me here, Sunday and Stephen. I'm so, so grateful. I'm really grateful. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for coming on and for the work you do and, and for like sharing so much as well because it, it must take a, a toll. So, so thank you, oh, Jason. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Well, that was an incredibly powerful uh, conversation with Jason, wasn't it, Sandy? What did you think? Yes, it, it certainly was, Stephen. I mean, I, I was interested by a lot of things he said, but um, one thing that struck me particularly was his approach to, to anger, really, mm. and uh, how I think he explained to us that he tended to hide or submerge some of his anger uh, in order to be taken seriously through his work and, mm. and in order to have his, his voice heard, you know, mm. and I think that's very interesting. Cause, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, growing up in or, or living in uh, Brixton, as, as I uh, discussed with Owen Thomas in a previous episode. And, you know, the kind of music that people were listening to then was people like Linton Quasi Johnson, who, you know, produced some very angry work about being black person in a racist society. I saw him talk about this quite recently as well with Paul Gilroy, who some of you will know, wrote There Ain't No Black and Union Jack, a well-known academic. And um, Linton Quasi Johnson was saying, I think, how he felt uh, that that sort of anger of that generation had to an extent been dissipated and that perhaps today's young people needed to recapture some of that anger and he, I'm, I'm wondering what he would have thought about, he would think about someone like Jason. And would he say, well, Jason has been assimilated into the the, the white-dominated academy? I don't know if he'd think that. But, uh, you know, I think it's an interesting sort of tension and contradiction about how black people, black men manage these kinds of emotions. I mean, I'm not saying what Jason had to say about it wasn't valid. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's well thought through. But uh, But there are perhaps different perspectives on that. And, you know, there's a lot of other work around as well that would reflect that. So I was I was thinking whilst he was talking about Lem Cisse's memoir, My Name is Why, and, and how, you know, he was treated when he was growing up in the sort of foster care system, the care system, you know, treated in a very racist way, as he makes clear in his book. I mean, I, I recommend it. It's a very powerful read. So anyway, so, you know, there are issues around anger and what you do with that. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was around the whole notion for people like us, for white people, about our discomfort, really, and how important that is. I mean, he gave a good answer to, you know, what the the kinds of things that um, white people could do and, and say. And actually, if I'm allowed a little plug here, I've been talking to Martin Robb, who some of you will remember was on our first episode of this podcast, about doing a special edition of a journal called Genealogy, um, about how we come to terms with our own sort of troubled and troubling history around colonialism and our families' histories. You know, and I think that that is another sort of dimension to this, um, which I would be very interesting to explore. So, so if anybody listening wants to get in touch about that, please, please do contact me because we're looking for people who might want to write about that subject. So what did you, what did you make of it all, Stephen? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Sandy. I mean, the, the, the one about anger is really interesting, isn't it? Because we talk quite a lot about how in terms of masculinity, anger is one of the few emotions which men are kind of allowed to express openly. Uh, but obviously that, that works quite differently for black men where they may be 
kind of judged and seen as dangerous and aggressive um, in in that way. Um, and that's that's uh, connects as well to what Jason was saying about you know how radical you're allowed to be as well, and that perhaps we as white people have a responsibility therefore to make those really quite you know radical critical arguments because we're not going to receive the same level of abuse or criticism for doing so. But then in the process, are we also going to get therefore you know credit for making those arguments when they're not really you know they're not original arguments or anything um, like that? So I think that that just highlights um, as we've discussed in the past some of the tensions around allyship. But I think as well, the point made by you and, and by Jason around that discomfort um, is also really crucial that, uh, yeah, we, ha we have to have uncomfortable conversations and reflections. Um, and rather than kind of trying to push them away in a kind of defensive way, I think we should really em em try and embrace that discomfort and, and just kind of dwell on it and reflect on it, because that's how we can make progress both individually and as a society, because these are very, you know, uncomfortable, but vital issues. Um, but yeah, that's the end of uh, today's episode. Thank you so much uh, for listening, everyone. Don't forget to check out our previous nine episodes from last year, if you haven't already done so. And we look forward to bringing you the next one soon. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, so you're notified as soon as the next one comes out and please do leave a review and encourage your friends to give now and men a listen as well yes and we always uh, welcome feedback questions suggestions so do get in touch at nowandmen at gmail.com if there's anything you'd like to share with us uh, but for now goodbye and take care goodbye <laughs>